0: Hello oh, and welcome to another edition of Twenty Minutes in the Film Podcast, where we discuss the first twenty minutes of films, both great and terrible. I am joined as ever by uh, Tom Oliver. Who are you? And I'm Rob Beams. Uh, hi, Tom. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. Which uh, which which film are we are we looking at the first twenty minutes of in this in this the latest uh, instalment?
1: Well, as I'm fairly certain. You mentioned at the end of the last one, although now I'm questioning whether no, I that think I did. true or not. We are talking about uh, Spike Lee's seminal 1989 classic, uh, "Do the Right Thing."
0: We we certainly are. We should we mm-hmm. say up front we uh, while we're not releasing this episode for a few weeks, uh, we are we are actually recording this the, the morning after the Oscars. So, yeah. uh, f- Spike Lee has actually been freshly uh, freshly honoured with uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. Yeah, uh, as, rightly as so. Me. I thought
1: Black Klansman was a really good film. Have you seen it
0: yet? Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed Black Klansman, actually. Yeah. Um, it, it was actually... Uh, I watched it directly after doing the rewatch of Do The Right Thing for for this podcast. So mm. it's kind of a quite a nice, um, bookended, uh, Spike Lee double bill. Excellent. Um, I was thinking, um, just
1: before we did this podcast because, you know, he made pretty much uh, headline news with his... I mean, there is, from the Oscar ceremony, a lot of Spike Lee material coming our way uh, to consider, not least of all, the outfit that he wore, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, Um, he did look awesome. But also, as is Spike Lee's way, he had uh, very choice words for the ultimate best picture winner, Green Book, um, which somewhat crypt- i mean not really cryptic but um i, I think he was clearly quite drunk <laughs> and uh <laughs> has been just v- very 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 thinly veiled kind of um making his feelings clear about how he feels about green there's, there's a lot of that entertaining.
0: there's a lot of that coming out of the ceremony i saw a, a screenshot uh, going around twitter of um I think it's Chadwick Boseman's reaction to Green Book Winning oh, as well. Really? Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of that going around uh, yeah. on, on Twitter. It's a thing where um not to get too distracted into a, a Green Book conversation, uh Twitter film Twitter is reacting to Green Book Winning as if it is a tragedy on the level of waking up to find that uh, Donald Trump's been elected or, or Brexit. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like how? Oh God! I went to sleep thinking we lived in a Roma world, and now this. Yeah. You know, I wish uh, this had
1: actually happened three years ago, so then people could have included it, <laughs> included it in their. um You know, ah, oh, this year we lost Bowie, we lost <laughs> Prince, Donald <laughs> Trump's president, Brexit happened, and
0: Green Book won the Best Picture award. <laughs> yeah, it does feel in keeping with with the kind of current end times vibe that that the world is <laughs> going <laughs> with. Um, wow. but that it's... is a, that is a damning uh, yeah. that is a real <laughs> condemnation <laughs> but it's but it's interesting because i know while um it's not fair to say it's retrospective backlash because people hated green book in the run-up to the award as well yeah but i think winning the award is definitely going to intensify the feeling that it's somehow like the worst film ever and it's the worst film to win yeah. the award, and it's the most racist movie made by white people about racial issues ever and, and all of this um and a lot of valid points are flying around in The film is deeply problematic in regards to how it sort of depicts race, but ultimately, Um, it it isn't the worst film of the nominees. It's simply the most mediocre of all the nominees because Bohemian Rhapsody is far and away the like on a technical level the worst film that was nominated. Yeah, and I
1: was I I mean, it was a conflicting like I haven't seen Green Book, but from what I hear and the sense I get from the trailer, it's not the best picture, Um, but by Bohemian Rhapsody standards, definitely not the worst. Like, I was really conflicted. Like, yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody hasn't won, but Green Book has won. But it was more a deflective... Like, I, I'm i just trying to think of all the nominees. I don't think there was any that I was particularly excited about. Uh, the favourite I thought was really good. But, again, like, you want... Of a best picture, you want the level of, like, Godfathers and No Country for Old Men level, like... Um, Great films being sort of honoured.
0: I didn't think it was a bad field. I I really like, as you know, I really like this Star is Born. Yeah, I really oh, like yeah. Star is Born. I really like the favorite. I really like Roma. So oh, I, God, yeah, I think there are her. I think there are sort of three or maybe four. Black Klansman as well. I, I I really enjoyed. I think there yeah. were, were several other films in there that were very sort of worthy of that recognition. Sure, uh, but the Academy seemed to be swaying towards. I mean, even Black Panther, which isn't even really my favorite Marvel movie, but I mm. I like you know yeah. i wouldn't have been unhappy to see that pick up an award i mean that would've been quite a big deal for a, a genre movie of its kind and everything to get mm. that kind of recognition um, but it seems that they just went for the just most beige movie out of the entire yeah. lineup
1: yeah absolutely the least controversial which well, i guess speaks to just the amount of members that the academy must have it's like there uh, like i was saying to you just before we started recording like the um, like there's no way of i've found no compiled list Of all Academy members, and I'm assuming that's because there are just like thousands and thousands of them by now. And uh, just all of them who put in their nominations and votes, it all comes out very, you know, there's no strong kind of feeling towards one film or the other. You know, it's dead center always. And Green Book feels, uh, if you were to sort of rank all the nominees, Green Book feels very dead center, you know, in quality terms.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was wondering that myself, whether uh, it's it's evidence of a very split year where maybe you yeah. had a lot of people who actually were in the kind of Bohemian Rhapsody camp and then things like the favourite Roma and Star is Born kind of knocking each other out by kind of spreading yeah. the kind of prestige vote. Oh, <laughs> and yeah.
1: then you just got the yeah, block yeah,
0: mediocre definitely. vote triumphing. Yeah, maybe. um... I don't know. But I think a good segue on to talking about Do the Right Thing is is the fact that we're talking about this film in the shadow of not only Spike Lee's Oscar win, but the best picture win of a film that I think most who've seen it would agree does not have a particularly progressive view on racism you know yeah and those kind of issues it's very much the safe um film about the bad old racism rather than yeah. the contemporary racism and the film that kind of is about a white character learning over the course of the narrative not to be so racist in a kind of a very yeah. simple way there's also a weird thing in green book that I've not heard too many people speaking about, but then I haven't necessarily looked in the right places. But something that really struck me when I was watching it as well was there's a thread in it that's about Vigo Mortensen's character teaching the Ali character um, how to be more black or better right. as being black <laughs> like yeah. uh like the uh the ali character uh doesn't like fried chicken and doesn't listen to black music and vigo mortensen sort of teaches him to love these things it's kind of very, very yeah. strange that's uh...
1: <laughs> especially now really that feels like really dangerous ground to tread if like because some i think there are a very small margin of filmmakers who can pull off that strange kind of like self propagating satire on these ideas like but i don't think for all the love in the world that peter farrelly is that person like um yeah it just feels like a very um you know trying to be bold and daring in confronting these issues but actually, I mean, I, I, I say this mercifully because I haven't actually seen it. But I know the exact scenes that you're talking about from the trailer. And I can imagine in context, they stream together like fairly yeah. distastefully or at best, like quite
0: broad. Well, the thing and... is, it's my experience of watching it. This is kind of turning into a Green Bit podcast. now. My experience of watching it, though, was mostly that it was fun. Because most of the movie kind of hums along at a nice pace with these two very very good actors just kind of having a lot of chemistry and being quite funny and endearing together in this kind of buddy road movie. And on Mm. that level, it's just a fairly fun, just middle of the afternoon on telly film to sit and watch. I think it gets it gets this sort of heightened bad press and anger towards it because of its proximity to the awards season. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if this movie existed in a kind of little bubble where it was um, uh, a little known film of the year or something that had gone around the festival circuit and not really been very widely distributed, I think people would be a little bit kinder towards it but at the mm. same time I'm not saying they should be super kind towards it, I'm just saying that it's it's a very kind of average film with a couple of very good, very above average performances that's now mm. going to attract a kind of a disproportionate level of ire. but I think all Best Picture nominees do that, I mean I was talking to people on film twitter about this during the awards but about this idea that um star is born the favorite roma they all kind of stand to benefit from not winning best picture in the long run because now they're all the films that lost to green book you know what i mean whereas if if star is born had won the backlash on star is born would have been just so like it would have been it would have had no cachet at all in a couple of years You'd say oh star is born yeah. oh that really middle of the road academy film where they just gave it because they love actors who become directors you know whereas now it's kind of been spared that association and people can yeah. go oh yeah that was a good film why did they give it to green book <laughs>
1: yeah i feel like uh, it's weird how that works isn't it mm. like if a star is born had uh got it then um, it would have just changed everyone's kind of feelings towards that film, which is just part of the whole weird thing that the Oscars are and just the relationship towards, like, films that you cherish and films that are kind of prestige and, anyway. I think um, the
0: danger of it is is that most people who care about film right now, they know that Green Book's are a pile of shit, but if you're talking about it in 50 years time and you're talking yeah. about new young people coming up just wanting to watch films and get kind of embedded in the canon they'll yeah. go back and try and watch they'll see things like the best picture nominees as a guide you know i know i did right. when i was young but like, Oh, i want to see the things that have kind of been held up as important and because it's a best picture winner it starts to get built into all the montages and the <laughs> You know, the little, yeah. the little kind of the film canon, as it were, starts to yeah. get folded in there by the the Academy and so forth. And then maybe that cements it as, as maybe a, a more prestigious movie than it actually ought to well, be. Well, a
1: funny and very uh, relevant comparison is the fact that, um, like Spike Lee said last night after uh, winning the Screenplay Award, and they, they do that kind of like press wrap-up type of thing when they all stand up and answer questions – Um, You know, he says every time somebody is driving, um, then I lose. And obviously something like Driving Miss Daisy, winning Best Picture. I don't know anybody who's seen Driving Miss Daisy or regards it with any kind of like. And I think recently I actually screened it at the cinema. Well, I didn't personally screen it, but um, it was shown at the cinema that I work. And I was watching the first 10 minutes of it. And it is aged about as well as kind of like a a late 80s, early 90s American um, sort of sitcom or, mm. like, TV movie. Like, it really is just not held together at all. It does feel like a feel TV like,
0: movie. Yeah, yeah,
1: and I feel like Green Book will probably go a similar way, whereas Do the Right Thing, obviously, is just pretty solidly cemented in the canon, so to speak. Yeah, you're like right. That yeah. is um, absolutely part of... You know, that that just is revisited constantly. Like, I don't go two or three years without it sort of coming around to someone either talking about it or showing it or it becoming like, you know, I mean, I've worked at cinemas for a long time and it always seems to pop up every so often.
0: Well, on film, on film Twitter, the, the, there was a large kind of a sizable clamor last night for Spike Lee to be given Best Director, um, not for... Black Klansman, but simply because people thought he sh- was owed one for what he had done particularly would do the right thing yeah. um, he also referenced do the right thing in his speech uh, accepting his uh, best uh, adaptive screenplay Oscar he yeah. talked about um, Donald Trump and the election coming up into a 2020 and told everyone to do the right thing uh, and he also had the um, the love and hate. Uh, kind of the rings on that um, Rabia yeah, Rahim yeah. in the film has. So mm. it's interesting how much Do the Right Thing which Spike Lee stars in as well. And To my knowledge it's the only one of his films he stars in. Um, I might be wrong on that. I've not seen all of Spike Lee's early films. But mm. like um this this film seems very closely associated with Spike Lee in a way that yeah. maybe the other films they they haven't had that power and they don't have that close association and it seems still like a very personal signature movie.
1: Mm, totally, yeah. Um, I can't remember what I was going to say, but yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> I I did sort of going, I was thinking sort of segues into do the right thing, but I think that's probably ideal. Um, but it is weird. Uh, just thinking that um back then he was up against the same kind of film and yeah. lost to the same kind of film as he did now and uh yeah he's obviously still pissed off about this
0: <laughs> it's weird spike lee was really strange to watch at the oscars because he moves between uh a kind of perpetual sort of slightly bored slightly confused frown yeah and then just mania like, yeah. like uh, when, when Samuel L. Jackson first got up with Brie Larson to present that award he yeah. um, started addressing Spike Lee to tell him that the Knicks had won a game or something during yeah. the Oscars because Spike Lee's a big fan and yeah. when Samuel L. Jackson started talking to him he just, the close up on him he just looked like oh Spike Lee's pissed off he's pissed off he doesn't want to be talked to he doesn't want to joke but then as yeah. soon as Samuel L. Jackson said the Knicks had won he like jumped out of his seat you know like he, <laughs> it's, it's really crazy like as soon as he won the Oscar he's like jumping up and uh, at one point I think oh who was it somebody came on stage with barbara streisand she came on stage to present uh, a, an award during the night and she mentioned that uh she had a close affinity with spike lee because they're both from brooklyn and when she mm. said that spike lee was like "Woo!" you know <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like representing brooklyn uh it's it's weird he, he does have this kind of real um energy about him but but also seems kind of intimidating. Like if I was asking Spike Lee a question on a red carpet, I would be really nervous because he does Mm. look like he's also thinking you're an idiot.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I feel like that is a good comparison for a lot of his filmography. Like I feel like a lot of his films carry this like very uneven, unpredictable energy with them that you're never quite sure where they're going. And it feels like that you don't know if they're like you can't quite read them like i'm talking sort of lower tier ones definitely not do the right thing i think for all intents and purposes do the right thing is as is has a really really strong grasp on what it's doing which is kind of weird because i read that it was uh, it was written in like two weeks or something ridiculously quick but he obviously just got his message i feel like in this film he gets his message across like straight down the line you know like all the way he just knows exactly what he's talking about
0: it it is it's a really, really tight movie um, yeah. so we uh basically if you 've not tuned in before, we typically go through the first twenty minutes of the movie uh, making fewer sort of asides and just say what basically happens and then start yeah. discussing uh how effective it is in setting up the themes, the characters, the story, and so forth so i'll just yeah. I'll just quickly run through my notes for the first twenty minutes. hopefully I can read my notes because I yeah. read them over a week ago. Yeah. Uh, so my handwriting is Yeah, same awful. with mine. I've written really uh, an envelope <laughs> over my own address. <laughs> so basically the movie starts with a fairly, well, pretty iconic sequence, right? It starts with Rosie Perez, who I think this was her first movie, uh, mm. and she's dancing in front of like um, uh, the... I don't know. Are these, is this what you'd call the projects or I'm not really, uh, I think like the, on a block, on a city block like in New York. Housing, basically. But yeah. There's a
1: name. Brownstones. Brownstones, right? Brownstone like stoops and brownstones
0: yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Um, and she's dancing in front of, in front of these brownstone buildings. Uh, and you've got public enemies fight the power playing, which is obviously a super famous song and was actually written specifically at the request of Spike Lee for this movie.
1: Um,
0: yeah. and it's playing over her dancing um and you get a lot i would argue you get a lot of the uh, not necessarily the themes but lots of the motifs of the movie lots of stuff yeah. from the movie kind of the coming through in there, this like... like but you've got like the oppressive heat like the whole movie takes place during like the hottest day of the year doesn't it and there's all these newspapers yeah. saying how hot it is and the heat is what's kind of co- uh making the the ten- the racial tension rise even more right everyone's, head mm. up, everyone's hot um and it's you really get that sense of the heat during this dance like the bright red lights that are being shone and everything it looks kind of sweaty and oppressive Yeah, you get sounds of police radio you get sounds of police helicopters you get um this kind of expression as well of pride in african-american identity pride in african-american expression and art and culture Uh, and all of these things are very inherent in the movie and kind of part of i'm not gonna say what it's about it's not about being hot but you know what i mean they're all things that are very present through the movie
1: i think in i mean this is a a bit of a, a glib Uh, assessment but i think it is about being hot rob (laughs) i think (laughs) a lot of it is about like you know not only the physical heat but just obviously you know tensions boiling over and all that and i think you um definitely feel that uh I i mean i've always had this weird thing where i thought for a long time that the title sequence was A, a great title sequence, but felt more like a really, really good music video rather than a kind of introduction to the film. But over time, and as you've just sort of uh, highlighted, it very much is like, this is, it's such a, it's such a, like an excellent opener. It says like, this Mm. is what you're going to see kind of thing. Like (laughs) this is how it's going to be. It's going to be kind of loud and very stylish and it's going to feel very intense and it's going to be, like um, quite brutal in a way. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that would go in maybe one of my favourite title sequences ever. Like, I think title sequences of war is really weird. Like, you don't really see them anymore. They sort of just... Uh, most of the time, they leave them until the end of the film. But sometimes they'll have them over the beginning. But actual outside of like bond films you don't really see title sort of sequences it's like a really rare thing
0: they got i think Um, they got killed by the first wave of superhero movies you know everything from tim burton's batman to the original x-men and spider-man films used to have these really elaborate title sequences where like a a camera would be going around a dna strand or through a web or around a maze for 20 minutes to the point where that was something that started to get parodied in trailers for comedies taking the piss out of superhero movies and things like that kind of became uh I, th- I think it wore people's patience out for- yeah it's, it's quite
1: tedious in all honesty like i have a soft spot because i kind of grew up around a time when title sequences were still a thing but um, looking back, it, you are just a little bit like, we're here now, let's just kind of get on with it. But, but I, there are still exceptions where you're like, I do enjoy what's going on here in I, and of itself. I think this so.
0: is one of those for sure, especially yeah. when you realise, because the song itself, the public enemy song, Fight the Power, is so famous outside of this movie. Like, mm. I knew that song before I'd seen this movie, because yeah. of that as well, Um I didn't necessarily realise the first time I saw Do The Right Thing that Spike Lee had been involved in specifically uh, kind of commissioning this song and having having very specific ideas for what he wanted it to sort of express and be about and working with Public Enemy on it. And when you know that, the lyrics themselves are very pertinent to the movie because... That it's got those lines in it um, like uh, Elvis was a hero to most but he never meant shit to me uh, yeah. how the, this guy's hero the singer's heroes you know they're not on stamps uh, and, and this kind of idea that um, black culture is kind of suppressed that there isn't the representation um, and that comes into the movie I mean the central conflict in the film starts around the idea that uh, there aren't any brothers on the wall right? In, yeah. if you, for people who are listening and haven't seen Do the Right Thing which would be madness but you're entitled to stay here uh yeah. it's uh, in a pizzeria this is actually where we get to the 20 minute mark in the movie they're in a pizzeria and uh Mookie who despite Lee's character he's got a friend in there who starts asking him why there aren't any african-americans uh being yeah. celebrated in pictures on the wall it's all like italian-americans like sinatra and robert de niro and al pacino and all this yeah and uh and the guy in the pizzeria um has a go at him and tells him there's only going to be american italians on the wall and the the central conflict starts around um, the Italian Americans not wanting to represent the Black Americans who are their customers, and then you get Radio Rahim, who's always his 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 whole gimmick is that he's uh, got a, a big beatbox blaring out his his music, uh, and there's a central tension where he comes into the pizzeria and is always told to turn his music off. So. I think that's also in the song at the start, this whole thing about having to represent your culture and how your culture yeah. is being suppressed, your culture is being beaten down, and people aren't proud of your culture, and you need to be yeah. proud of it. I th- and and I think that's part of what makes the song... Cause it is a music video for the song. I mean, the song just—the song starts when the film starts, and the title credits ends when the song is finished. Right? I mean, yeah. it basically is just—it starts with this Public Enemy song. That's how the mm. film starts. But I think that when you put it in context, and maybe this helps when you're watching on a repeat viewing in a way. But I think when you come back to it, you're like, oh, that song is actually pretty um, true to everything that goes on in the film.
1: Right? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's also just a really great song yeah in its own right like i always get that thing of whenever i watch the title sequence i just there's i the energy about it is really infectious like and i feel like you couldn't have written or picked a better song to set you up for kind of the mood that you need to be in for what you're about to like uh see i guess yeah process in terms of what happens in the film Um, Yeah, no, it's really, really great. And also then, not to skip ahead, but I guess we are moving sort of in sequences, Uh, following on from that, the whole uh, you go into Samuel L. Jackson Mm. who plays the uh, radio DJ whose name is uh, Senor Love Daddy. And um, he then basically wakes everyone up with an alarm clock over the radio. And that again is like such a, you could have cut the whole title sequence out And started with that, and it's still like just a really strong beginning. So it's not like Spike Lee is kind of like biding his time and trying to distract you with, you know, the kind of flashbang of a title sequence and then doesn't really know where to go from there. Like, it it just feels very much like all the pieces are in the right place already, like in these first five, seven minutes. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it very
0: much feels like that is the beginning of the script, right? That that, that seems to be sort of where, where where the movie really begins. And that is a yeah. very impactful opening in its own right, as you say. We go from Samuel L. Jackson uh, as this DJ. We open on this really intense close-up of his mouth, right? And then we kind of slowly zoom out. Am yeah. I remembering that correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really yeah. well It's done.
1: like a really gradual one-shot. And I'm pretty sure it goes all the way out... Because he's kind of got this radio mm. station with a big window overlooking, like, the street. So he's kind of, like, uh, not to get too pretentious, but what they'd call in old, like, Greek plays, the chorus, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Is that the word for it? He's Basically. sort of the Greek chorus for the whole film, like, overwatching everything, commenting on stuff. He's the sort of narrator. That not, He's not directly the uh, narrator. He's kind of like a substitute narrator, just adding colour and context to everything that's going on um, and yeah he's, he's like there first thing sets everything yeah. up and you get in one shot you get him uh, I mean so much is set up in his little opening monologue he says where they are they're in the uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant area of New York I'm not sure is it Brooklyn? I'm guessing it would be Brooklyn I think Brooklyn. it's Brooklyn yeah, yeah uh, they're in the Bedford-Stuyvesant um, area of that a borough and that it's like insanely hot and that's kind of just all you need to be before you start before you meet any characters know what's going to happen that's such a great like it does feel very theatrical in that way it just feels like curtains up this is what's going to happen when the curtains come up kind of thing and it literally is him talking and you move away from him, and then the camera turns onto the street, and it just feels like a like a real curtains up kind of moment.
0: Yeah. And then we, one of the things we often come back to on this podcast, talk about the openings of movies, is how quickly they establish the place and the characters and, and yeah. the aspects. This film does the really good job of this. You get a really clear sense from the very beginning of the neighborhood, of the street that they're on, of the community. And so you yeah. go from Sam Jackson and establish him in the radio station uh and the fact that it's not, not really shown people listening to him much but you get the feeling that everyone listens to him because he seems to know everyone as well like he's commenting on specific characters in the street by name saying oh look there goes uh radio raheem oh mookie's coming by so he, he, you yeah. get you get this sense really quickly in the film that this is a community which yeah. is a big deal in the sense that um i didn't really grow up in a community you know what i mean like i grew up yeah. in a in a in a house on a street where I didn't necessarily know my neighbours to the left or to the right or the opposite. Yeah. Uh, everyone kept to themselves. Kids didn't really necessarily go out and play in the street and I think that's fairly common in a lot of I don't know just like white neighbourhoods is too much of a generalisation. I don't know what American experience is like in white neighbourhoods in that way yeah. but it does definitely seem like in the world of uh, Do the Right Thing which, which I know I wasn't in that area in the late 80s so I don't know but it feels authentic to me. Yeah, uh, you definitely. do get a sense of a community a place where people genuinely all know each other genuinely all know kind of how everybody is what everybody's doing you know um and that's kind of quite appealing it's something in the film that you get this sense of pride in the area sense of pride in the street and in each other well
1: here's a weird thing sorry to sort of uh i I just want to sort of uh, branch off from something you said there is that um like right off the bat for me a sense of community in just like a work of art specifically a film i is really important to me like i feel like you don't see enough of that like uh traditional narratives are all about like individuals and kind mm. of um people you know the films that i like the least are well obviously very cynically made films that sort of hocked off from other films but um films where protagonists are individuals that are sort of cut off from uh, each other. Uh, I'm I'm speaking, like, way too broadly. I mean, there are plenty of fantastic films which are about those kind of things, but, um, like, any film where there is this sense of, like, many subplots weaving this whole... Something like Dazed and Confused. Like, a lot of Richard Linklater films are about this, like, about... you know like not so much individuals but like the idea of people together like couples as in something like Before Sunrise or like a group of teenagers like who are all friends like in Dazed and Confused so I think I am you know I I admire and it's no more evident than it is in the first 20 minutes that um, you know from actually from the moment that that Sam Jackson starts talking you see you open not on your main character, but you open on supporting players, so you open on DeMeyer, who's a mm. sort of uh he's this kind of like older alcoholic and he's like waking up in his apartment and then Smiley, who's kind of uh a guy I guess who's got like either learning difficulties or like a speech impediment and he's talking about Malcolm X and um Oh what's his God. name? Mile King. Oh what's yeah. his name? Something or other um and I just love the boldness to not stick, because Mookie, uh, without doubt, is the protagonist, but he again is sort of like um, anchored by all these different roles going on. And, you know, throughout the film, Spike Lee could spend five or ten minutes away from that main character, just interested in all different things going on. Uh, and that's the kind of film I don't think you see often enough. And I'm, you know, all for...
0: Frankly, Yeah, I, I would struggle to name a f- another film with such a clear sense of community as this one, yeah. a clear sense of a group of, of people united by a shared sense of neighbourhood and culture living yeah. in that close proximity and you do get a great sense of i talk about this all the time in this podcast but it, it always means so much to me and makes films so much more grounded when you have a really clear consistent sense of space you get to yeah. know very quickly in this movie um the, the the street or the couple of streets that it's really set on um yeah. to the point where uh everything makes a lot of spatial sense like you know you've got those three uh three old guys sitting in deck chairs in front of yeah. that red bright red wall during some of the film yeah. they're opposite the korean grocer the korean grocer on the other side of it on the corner is opposite the pizza place and the pizza place yeah. is down the road from you know the 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 dj and from where mookie lives and you get that sense very quickly and it all it all makes sense when the camera right. is out in the street you've got a good sense of what's where in relation and that that always sort of grounds a movie for me and makes me feel like yeah. i'm watching a real place it, it's yeah that definitely. added uh, verisimilitude, you know
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Um, But it's funny how all that stuff doesn't come together until the end. Like, I didn't realise until the end, and I won't spoil anything for anyone who hasn't seen it, but that the Korean grocer is opposite the pizza place. And then the uh, I'm I'm sure there's a shot where you see the big red wall with the three guys sitting in front of it opposite the Korean grocer, but you don't. You're obviously piecing this together as yeah. you kind of go around. Well, when that becomes clear points. to me
0: is when um, there's a scene where uh, John Turturro starts shouting at the um, I can't remember what you said the name of the character was, the one with the speech impediment. Smiley. Smiley. When Smiley's yeah. outside at the window and he runs outside, starts shouting at him, and then he starts shouting at the Koreans opposite, and then he starts shouting because oh, okay, the guys yeah. on the red brick wall start shouting him for harassing the kid, uh, and you kind of get that interplay. Then maybe sort of halfway yeah. through the movie starts to to kind of piece itself together. But anyway, so you get Samuel Jackson on the radio, you get Ozzy Davis, as you say, the, this local kind of yeah. lovable drunk who everyone yeah. more or less seems to. Well, I was going to say everyone seems to like, but then he does get heat from, um, uh, she called mother, sister, mother, sister. Mother sister yeah. And also from that gang of younger people includes Martin Lawrence. He seems to kind of oh, get yeah. some ire from them, but generally he seems like a fairly beloved, just local character. Um, yeah. you do, as you say, you get smiley, you get introduced to him standing in front of a church, like this really, uh, there are some really memorable shots in this movie, just really memorable images. Uh, mm. one of them is smiley when he's talking about Martin Luther King and, um, and Malcolm X, uh, and you have that like uh that angle looking up at him the the yeah. kind of low angle looking up with the church looming over behind him um mm. you get introduced to Mookie and his sister soon after that you get introduced to john Turturro his uh who is the son of the pizzeria owner uh mm. and his brother who um he has a kind of antagonistic relationship with which is kind of a running relationship in the movie um you get this great scene uh where Mookie walks um walks out of his apartment uh to work and then you kind of that's where you start piecing all these things together because he yeah. walks out and he sees mother sister and he kind of walks down the street you get a sense of everyone on the block you know as they sort of say hi to yeah. Mookie um Ozzy Davis again that comes by uh, what's he called Demea Demea, yeah. De De comes by and argues with uh, with mother sister played by Ruby D, and um, mm. it was interesting to me. Just it's, again, it's more sort of like trivia than than analysis. But mm. Ozzy Davis and Ruby D were like married for most of their lives. They were sort of uh, up until the point of their deaths. Uh, so yeah. it's kind of there's a lot of charisma between the two of them, and obvious love between the two of them. I felt like you get. I really like that little subplot between the two of them and their relationship in this film. Yeah. Um, You get uh, Rosie Perez's character, who is Mookie's girlfriend. Also, you know, she's got a kid with Mookie. Uh, You get her arguing with her mother. They are, they're Latino, right? They're not, um, like, African-American. They're Latino. And then you get to the, uh, the three dudes in front of the red brick wall. Uh, yeah. and they're sitting out on these deck chairs talking about among other things climate change which i thought was interesting it's yeah, like yeah. it is already something people were very aware of <laughs> yeah know, yeah it wasn't wow. you know it's kind of uh it's talked about these days almost like it's controversial you know it gets, kind of gets both yeah. sides uh <laughs> people say well, oh, well no one you know, no one talks
1: about the ozone layer anymore like that, that i remember one, in the 90s it? was like yeah. the big concern that we're gonna burn a hole in the ozone layer no one gives a shit about the Which, ozone layer that anymore. sounds like, when
0: you say back on it that does sound like the plot of like just a bad 90s sci-fi film doesn't it i'm Which pretty sure that um is it waterworld to do with that maybe
1: um i i have a feeling like that um not the marvel avengers but the avengers that was adapted from the tv series yes. with um ray fines and uma thurman yeah sean connery is the villain who wants to control the weather by just burning a hole in the ozone layer like that's how he <laughs> will manipulate the weather is by destroying the ozone layer or something like that
0: that is um, a very that's how you know your your plot is very 90s um <laughs> so you you get those guys uh chatting, I, I, one of them's an immigrant right these three guys um i can i'm really bad with the names of the actors involved but you've one yeah. of them is from the wire he's uh, the uh, the you've deputy chief the of wire? police the deputy chief of police from the wire is one oh of three i guys. knew i recognized yeah, him he's yeah, yeah. driving me crazy and then and God, then you've got yeah. um the guy on the the far left of the group the older looking fella he is uh playing like a first generation immigrant right Right. Or, he's, or, or you know a guy who's come over because he's talking he's got more of a Caribbean accent and a lot of the conversations with him uh centers around the hypocrisy of him having a go at the Korean immigrants uh coming into the neighborhood and then them saying to him yeah but you're an immigrant you came over yeah. here as well yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that sort of relationship um which mm. you see quite a lot right like immigrants sort of uh, organizing against other immigrants throughout history in order to, I guess, cement their own identity yeah. of being from the area. It's the kind
1: of uh, school bully method. Of, it you is, know, yeah. If you pair up with a bully, then you don't get bullied.
0: Kind it's of exactly thing. like something that I used to notice a lot. This is very anecdotal, but but it, 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 I swear, I swear, to, I swear to the Lord, it's true. When I used to yeah. work in um, Sainsbury's when I was a student, uh, the majority of people who bought the Daily Mail from me were Indian or of Indian descent. Uh, i right, you know, yeah. i saw all the time and originally i was like why are these people buying this really racist newspaper so i was like <laughs> oh i guess because it's like if you buy the really racist newspaper you're saying yeah i agree with you guys yeah, yeah. those foreigners are bad I'm I'm all- like, not me yeah. <laughs> you i mean you? Uh,
1: that's that's very much true ultimately you know i think um you can't uh this is f- a massive digression but you can't sort of uh monopolize people's political positions sometimes you know like people believe people will uh side with whatever regardless of race and believe that wholeheartedly even if it conflicts their own um lifestyle or kind of nationality standing in one country or another um that's kind of just the way it is it's a weird thing but um yeah people are gonna believe what they want and that's the price of
0: democracy (laughs) but i do i do think there is a, a recurring theme of people um looking to i'm not saying they're doing it consciously even like i'm not even saying they're sure. cynically going oh i better side with them so i don't look like a foreigner yeah. But people do kind of understandably uh when they feel maybe they're under the cosh or they don't know if they fit in or they're an outsider yeah sometimes the reaction to that is to see if you can make yourself an insider right to see if you can yeah. pass like one of the easiest ways i would imagine, to combat some people you hear at your work being a bit racist about black people if you're indian is possibly to walk over to them and go yeah black yeah. people you know what i mean i'm with you guys on that on yeah i mean it <laughs> really strikes
1: at kind of like uh, just the whole kind of pointlessness of racism in the fact well, yeah you know just how completely arbitrary the whole thing is in the first instance it's like you know this whole scene exactly that it's like complaining about korean grocers, it's like but you're an immigrant as well it's like none of it makes any like it just doesn't hold together at all you know i was like, uh it never has and i was been...
0: i was really really racist until i saw a film called green book and it completely <laughs> turned me around it turns uh, you around turn me around um oh, wow. then Punching after you've eyes. got uh after you've got those three guys chatting you get to the 20 minute mark basically you get to the italian restaurant the pizzeria that has been in the neighborhood for uh several decades right it's been there a mm. long time the guy is he called gino what's the well
1: name? i That's oh Pizzeria? Uh,
0: Oh, God, what is his name?
1: Danny Aiello. Yeah. Um, the, the Sal. Called... Sal.
0: Sal. Sal, of course, Sal. Yeah, Sal's so, Pizzeria. Sal, um... Sal's Pizzeria. So Sal, is uh, he's been there for, for several decades, and he's very proud of his relationship to the neighbourhood and the fact he's still there. But he, but his son's mostly his son, played by John Totoro, who is just a massive, yeah. overt racist, uh, just doesn't want to be there because he doesn't want to be with all the N-words, you know, and he's really mm. kind of... Uh, fairly unpleasant guy um and kind of bullies his little brother uh we get the scene soon after them kind of opening the shop where um you get uh, Mookie's friend come in Mookie works there as a delivery guy you get his friend come in and start questioning why there's no brothers on the wall um, Yeah, and then the film kind of kicks off from there right I mean that's the first conflict and to talk about that first 20 minutes in terms of uh, what it establishes i think we have established here the neighborhood very clearly i think the space of everything's very good i think mm. we've met most of the principal characters is uh yeah. is radio Rahim in this first i haven't got a note yeah. of it He's he in is. Um, yeah because mookie meets him on his way to work right
1: yeah, yeah. and also i have a feeling that sam he passes samuel L. jackson's window and he uh makes he sort of notices him and makes comments yeah, about him yeah yeah um, he's a really interesting character, Radio Rahim, because he's sort of, um, he's like an outsider, really. Like, he's not hanging around with anyone, more so than even, like, um, Demaya is, because Demaya goes everywhere and talks to everyone, but, um, Radio Rahim he's kind of wandering around blaring Public Enemy out of this boombox, like, everywhere it goes, just like the same song, and, um yeah he kind of he doesn't really uh up until the batteries run out on his boom box he doesn't really interact with anyone um so obviously i mean i think i don't know we we don't have to go too much into the ending but i may have to give some kind of spoiler oh,
0: warning no, i think spoilers be damned i mean if you're watching this uh if you're listening to this sorry it's probably uh f- fairly open space to talk about the movie in total I
1: yeah think. unless you're some kind of maniac who can't watch the first 20 minutes of any film and <laughs> has been wishing for some podcasts to break it down in break detail down for, <laughs> for, for those out there of that elk, I apologize. But obviously he is kind of the outsider who avoids everyone and ends up in the end, getting um, murdered by the police who sort of cart him away because they're, they um, are breaking up. Well, full disclosure, the whole shop, the pizzeria um, sort of erupts into a riot a mini-riot on the street, and is torched to the ground. The police show up, and uh, Radio Rahim, I think, is fighting uh, with someone, and so the police uh, take a baton around his neck and basically strangle him to death, and then, realising they've accidentally killed him, they chuck him in the car and then drive off. So he is the crux of, like... Um or, actually, no, I'm getting this wrong. I'm getting the chronology wrong, sorry. that The burning down of the pizzeria happens before... Oh, happens after uh, Happens after, sorry. Yeah, yeah it happens yeah. after that. It's kind of the riot is... Um, Caused by sort of the death spun. of Raheem. Yeah, it's yeah, um,
0: instant. He's also so got of... the uh, the love and hate rings on, which are kind of part of the theme of the film. I've uh, I've heard Spike Lee talking about the ending of the film where Mookie's the one to throw the trash can and there being a theory around... Because um, the, apparently he says hate as he throws the trash can. Yeah. And there being a theory about... about that love and hate being uh part of mookie as well you know through the movie him churning yeah. between love and hate through the film
1: yeah um well it's there's the whole thing around the ending uh and obviously this is gonna digress from the beginning which is what we are talking about but um you know i've read how uh the idea of the title do the right thing like no one who grew up in those neighbourhoods in that around that time, when you had things like uh Rodney King and that whole sort of thing transpiring, like early 90s, no one um who grew up in those sort of areas ever questions whether to has never questioned Spike Lee whether um his character did the right thing, and he always finds it's kind of very white middle class um film intelligentsia who come up to him and sort of us but did he do the right thing i mean what he did was very like you know and that he sort of said in so many words that it was um about you know people have theorized that it's him deflecting uh the sort of angry tensions off of um sal and his son's and saving them from being, like, beaten to death by uh, trashing their place, and then they sort of go for the uh, shop instead of, like, the people themselves, and there's a whole kind of weird thing around that. Um, and, yeah, so uh, the whole love and hate thing, obviously, that's a reference to uh, Night of the Hunter, the whole written on the fingers. Have you yeah. ever seen... Night yeah, yeah, I have, yeah. Yeah, love that film. Um, but that, um, again, I think is tied into... Uh, you. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, like the very, very end, the sort of epilogue of the film is quotes, uh, different kind of quotes from both of them expressing views about violence. So there is throughout the film this um, constant dichotomy between like, you know, do we have to get angry to fight the power or do we have to show compassion? Do we have to be patient? Do we have to riot? Like, what is it we have to do, you know? And obviously setting that on a very clustered street with lots of people very close together on the hottest day of the year is kind of the perfect way to sort of play this whole kind of theme out. Mm. Um,
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I'm wondering whether in a 2019 context, if this film was released now, how it'd be received because on, on one hand, I wonder if he'd be accused of kind of both sides in some of the issues. Like he has mm. that sequence where I think fairly famous sequence in the film where um you get loads of racial epithets just said to the camera by different people. So you get yeah. the ones from the Italian Americans towards the African Americans, you get the you get the Korean uh guy I can't, I can't remember who he's slagging off but you get all these different uh <laughs> guys yeah, i think coming he's out just these... hating
1: on the jews i think he's yeah. just like jewish people coming in yeah and messing get, up my shop you or get whatever. the
0: african-american guy talking about the uh the white guy i think but you get you get this um you get this sequence of just that would seem to suggest on a admittedly a very shallow read it would seem to suggest a kind of Everyone's racist. Look at just all the equal yeah. racists. Uh, and then the fact, as well, that at the end of the film, you, obviously, you get the police brutality and you see some of the endemic kind of ways in which. The black people in the neighborhood obviously don't feel respected or or or, or part of the society. But at mm-hmm. the same time, you also do de- have a depiction of them rioting and uh, throwing the trash can through the window, burning the place down. You have the depiction of Radio Rahim goes in and the fight starts because he walks into somebody's private business with very loud music and won't turn it off which to me would just seem kind of rude. <laughs> I yeah, so there's yeah. a kind of, there's an element here where I wonder it came out now whether people would say is Spike Lee by presenting the racism as complicated by presenting the behavior of the black characters as well as being part of a complicated system of mm. lots of people rubbing each other the wrong way is, is it in some way letting us off the hook, you know?
1: Well, I feel like what is so great about this film is that it does basically just say exactly what you just said is that this these all these issues are really like from a social standpoint are really complicated. They have massive historical precedent. They have, you know, which has been carried over and whether that's necessary, you know, there's like social hierarchies are kind of psychological element like the idea of tribalism that people naturally live within neighbourhoods that are sort of of their um, sort of race or, you know, that's I just... I mean, that was, that was of...
0: enforced by housing policy. Uh, yeah, like and that as well.
1: Um, that that sort of just springs... And like, you know, you can't just boil all these things down to Green Book, you know. It's like... Like, it's it can't just be swept away or solved it's like he's basically saying with that ending with martin luther king and Malcolm X, he's saying like y- you kind of have to figure it out for yourself i guess or is, i i mean i might be looking at it really um just very in a shallow sense but he, he he's just saying it's incredible like you know there is no right thing effectively there is no right or wrong thing it's like um trying to make these big kind of um broad. I've totally forgotten what I was going to say. I've sort of gone off point a little bit. I
0: might be wrong on this and I'm I'm sure if Spike Lee was hearing us speak, he would think I'm just talking complete bullshit. But I wonder whether there's an element of this which is his own internal internal sort of struggle hence the love and hate between mm. whether he identifies stronger with Martin Luther King or Malcolm X because yeah. you get him trying to reconcile with John Totoro several times where he walks over to him and he says why do you hate black folks and tries to reason with him about it and say but you like all these artists for example and they're all black what's the problem there yeah tries to discuss it with him tries to find common ground tries to extend the olive branch tries to build mm. a bridge and doesn't get that turnaround doesn't inspire that change of heart doesn't prove that racism's wrong and so in the end maybe coming down the side of the Malcolm X like just you know what I'm gonna just defend myself against you and use violence if necessary Mm. Um, yeah I mean and this this conflict may be being a central part of what mookie is going through and what and what is doing the right thing as well i mean um in that context i mean martin luther king and Malcolm x would both have very different ideas about what do the right thing means wouldn't they so i wonder yeah, how absolutely. Much that plays into that
1: um and i guess it becomes like uh kind of like i was saying like an individual thing like the thing that spike Lee has said like people who are in these neighborhoods experiencing these things they have a very different idea of what doing the right thing is to, like, the police who come and are trying to, like, police these neighbourhoods, you know. It's like the thing they say in sort of classical storytelling about antagonists is that no real antagonists... Like, no one ever in life thinks they're doing evil, like, intentionally mm. doing evil to... You know, like, the thing they always say is Hitler thought he was the saviour of Europe, you know. It's like the villains have their own kind of ideas of what doing the right thing is, you know, and from the perspective of a very, very unempathetic kind of perspective of white policemen coming in and effectively murdering um, members of this community there, obviously there are consequences that they're aware of, but they, uh, they just see themselves as policing this like out of control neighborhood, you know? So, Mm. um, I mean, it's one, I obviously no one's going to empathize with that, but it's like, what is doing the right thing. And um, one thing uh, I wanted to say or ask you even is um, specific to the 20 minutes of um, this film is how you think balancing lots, how like, cause this film balances a lot of different subplots threads really well. And what is it about sort of multi-strand narratives that work as well as this film does, because it's something I've always been fascinated by, like that it could go, I feel like it's on the precipice of going so wrong and just being so overblown and confusing. So what is it you think like about um, this film that makes those different stories like work together
0: really well? I don't know. I think it's a combination of things. I think for one thing, all of the actors involved, and this is a place where maybe Spike Lee was very fortunate, perhaps. A lot of the actors involved are very immediately charismatic and very engaging uh you know you first see Ozzy davis you're kind of engaged with him because he's got a certain presence about him mm. and i think that's that that's true for the majority or all of the cast really so i yeah. think for one thing when you're going around these different folks they all seem very distinct when you first meet them whether they're uh, they're all very distinct characters in terms of the way they're dressed as well. I mean, we were talking, uh, before we recorded about how at the Oscars, you made a very good point of saying how at the Oscars, uh, things get awarded for being the biggest in their category so it's yeah. sort of like the biggest acting and yeah. I, and i was saying about how that's true for example with makeup and the costuming it's like mm. the person the film where someone wore the biggest dress wins costuming and the film where uh, someone's got the most r- outrageous prosthetics and makeup wins hair and makeup right um mm. and i think uh, i was saying to you then like i I wonder whether for the people in those industries, in those specific sectors, whether they would pick something slightly off the beaten path and they Mm -hmm. would recognise something maybe less extreme that we wouldn't. And I think this is a really good example of that in terms of costuming because all of these different characters, you can tell an awful lot from them when you first see them, that they're, they're very, very distinct from each other. You would never mistake uh, Radio Rahim with the group of characters that Martin Lawrence is with, that he hangs out with, with uh, Ozzy Davis, you know, or with the three yeah. guys that are sitting on the, um, the, the furniture out in the street by the, the red brick wall. You'd never, mm-hmm. you'd never mistake any of these characters. They're very clearly drawn. They're very charismatic actors in those roles. Um, yeah. They they are they dress very differently to each other in ways that say something about their characteristics. Like those guys on the deck chairs, they're wearing just like sh- vests, right? Yeah, so these aren't and guys obviously... who are.
1: They're like white vests that are super contrasted with like this dark red wall that's behind them
0: yeah and and these guys you you get from that costume design choice you get the idea that they are they're not necessarily going to work you know they're out yeah. there uh just this is a daily thing they do they, they come out on the street prepared to sit in a chair in the sun you know yeah um the, 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 this is something you kind of get something from the way that they have been dressed and presented to you that kind of suggests the way these guys behave the way these guys live the way these guys interact with the rest of the Mm. the area the same thing with uh, Ozzie Davis kind of dressing up kind of dapper Uh, with a a hat you know like a very fancy hat in a way that's at odds with the fact that he's also a drunk but he's kind of in line with his own self-image of being like a kind of pillar of the community you know a self-appointed mayor of the block you know well it kind of Um, says everything about him really
1: because it's like a suit which if was tidy cleaned and didn't have like holes and stuff in it would be very respectable but it is like dirty and, like, scratched up, and he's obviously worn it, like, every day for, like, a long time, and it just... That alone tells you so much about... Yeah, um, exactly. ...him, and that, I think... I mean, the, the thing with costume design and makeup as well is it is a really overlooked kind of block of uh, the filmmaking process next to something like, uh, you know, more sort of admired, like, cinematography, for example, because it does so much to tell you about the people like something i didn't realize until about a week ago is um in jurassic park little timmy is uh dressed up to look similar to um sam neill's character um dr grant like because he obviously admires him and that little detail and i've seen that film hundreds of times i never picked up on that he was doing that to sort of impress um dr grant and i just thought that's such a clever bit because there's no way that kind of detail is in the script. like generally a shooting script is boiled down to just like who's where and what they're saying and um that kind of thing is a really clever bit of costuming and in a film like this which um is dealing with uh lots of different characters you have to make all of their all of their little stories have to feel distinct so that you don't feel like you're watching the Mm -hmm. same thing at different turns you know exactly
0: so i think like for example if you um there's a certain strand of actors in hollywood who i would just get confused interchangeably between them they tend to be uh kind of young white men (laughs) there's a whole bunch of them that i would struggle to pick out of a lineup more or less and i think if you were cutting towards actors like that like a typical like rom-com lead love interest a yeah right and you put young adult sort of yeah and you put six of him in this movie in these different parts and in all of those parts he was dressed in a sharp suit then you're you're you could have the exact same script right and you could cut and edit it the exact same way you're not going to get that same sense of characters as you get in this film so i think that of the to answer your question about how they kind of i think they are successful in establishing this many different characters and it not feel like a mess i think that's one of the key ways i think another one that helps is that um spike lee does cut between them very uh with this is not probably the very good word it's kind of just like a, a really hacky term to use for it but with a lot of energy you know, like right. the the film has a really good pace and forward momentum to it.
1: Yes.
0: Uh, and it never lingers anywhere too long. It always goes away from action, just uh, not really with rising action. It's not cutting away from rising action, then going to another kind of building action, because that's not really yeah. the kind of film it is. But you'll go, you'll have a little vignette with some of these guys, uh, and it will be interesting, and it leaves before it stops being interesting. You know what I mean? I
1: feel like, obviously, this film is like. 30 years old nearly no surely now it's 30 years old like nineteen eighty nine. that's 30 years ago isn't mm. it? God that's a long time but um, I I, asp- I feel like an appro- a filmmaking approach was very different back then than it is now obviously um, but that it just feels like it moves with confidence you know it's like I feel if someone and I think there have been attempts to kind of sit down and make films similar to this in their sort of maybe kind of sprawling sense a little bit. Um, And they're they're just not written or directed with confidence and it just falls apart. It just becomes meandering, episodic. It just is a bit all over the place, like just very chunky. And something about this film, it just is very strong. It knows where it's going, even when they're kind of quite menial subplots. Like there's a whole five minutes committed to... Um, a guy, uh, a white guy who lives in the neighbourhood, who's a kind of nondescript character, accidentally stepping on, I think, Buggin' Out who's Mm. um, one of Mookie's friends. He steps on his shoe and they have this whole dispute and Buggin' Out won't let it go and there's this whole thing and obviously they're talking about like, you know uh, Buggin' Out's just like, you weren't born around here and like, what are you doing here kind of thing. Um, And it's on paper, like if you were to write that, you'd think, okay I need to make sure I get really good actors to pull that off and all the rest of it. But I think, I don't know, Spike Lee was really in his element with this film. And I think it goes a long way to say that, um, you can see that in the film, that there's just very kind of fairly thin plot strands that when are kind of woven together, really work together. Like, well,
0: I think, I think confidence is very, very clear throughout the film. Like I think, um, and Spike Lee always comes across as a pretty self-sure guy when you see him right. interviewed or if he seems to know yeah. he seems to know what his deal is he seems yeah. to know who Spike Lee is and he seems to like Spike Lee <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. that comes off in the film like he has cast himself as the lead guy he yeah. has gotten Public Enemy to do a song at the beginning that he has kind of been involved with you know it's very, it's very much an expression of of what he wants to say and he mm. seems to be even though i think it was his second film i might be wrong i think it was his only his second movie there is a yeah. real confidence to the whole thing like it does mm. seem like this guy is uh, totally in control of what's going on and it's e- even more amazing because this is pre-digital so this is this is a much more cumbersome set than I imagine it would be now as well, right? Like, this is a yeah. much more, <laughs> like, old-fashioned, labour-intensive sort of style of filmmaking to, to, yeah. be, to be doing on this city block, you know. Um, yeah. then, then it might be if you were kind of being able to run in and do it slightly quicker and lighter now. Yeah, uh, it's
1: funny. What, why is that? Because I feel like there was a period... Uh, during the 90s when this I, I'm not sure how much this film costs I'm just going to have a look but that it feels very off the cuff production wise whereas I feel like now it would require all manner of like precise planning just to have all these different characters and also making sure that it's the weather is consistent and things like that like uh, I don't know like there's obviously an economic shift um, somewhere which means that uh, I, I don't know it just feels uh, a lot um
0: it does feel very loose. It does feel very free. Yeah. But I think that's the illusion that has been created by how competent Spike Lee is making this movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure there was a lot of hoops to jump through and permits to get and, sure. <laughs> you know, ball yeah. leg to go through. No, as there is with most yeah. filmmaking. I mean, it's but, um, um,
1: always a chore.
0: Yeah, but I think I think it manages to handle these different shreds because, because of how the lightness of touch that we've kind of talked about there because mm. of how good these actors are the script really sings like that moment you talked about we bugging out having that argument that's really funny like that's yeah. one of the yeah, funniest yeah, yeah. scenes in the whole film um it is a very funny film to the point where i was only going to rewatch the first 20 minutes because it's a film i've seen several times before and yeah. it, i just stuck with it and watched the whole thing through again for this podcast because yeah. it just pulled me in and i was just enjoying being around all these characters again yeah uh Which I think speaks well of the first 20 minutes, really. Definitely, yeah. (laughs) I
1: mean, it's funny because if I was going to try and write this film, uh, or a film that has a similar setup, like there's one character, but they go in between lots of different characters, and you're sort you're getting a sense of a neighbourhood essentially, I would really struggle because I think there is um, a lot of kind of screenwriting uh received wisdom out there that's like you've got to make things happen you can't just go off on you know there's got to be one person and they've got to have conflict and there's all these kind of things and obviously like someone stepping on someone's shoe is like micro conflict <laughs> but yeah. deal- having micro conflicts i think takes a lot of uh confidence in your abilities to make that watchable and like uh enjoyable and i think the mark of any um ill confident writer or filmmaker is they have to have big broad conflicts you know it has to be massive challenges and all that kind of thing but I think so I th- when i see films yeah. like that i i there is something just uh, that i lose um touch with a, a bit because i'm like there. you know you're not quite uh you're going for something big like you want it to be like a movie and i feel like this is uh um something Yeah, I keep saying confidence, but that's kind of what it boils down to, you know, to do smaller little dramas and bring them all together as one thing and still have it feel very consistent and of a piece. I
0: I think you've hit the nail on the head there, though, that that this is part of why it's so successful dealing with these different characters and this kind of wider neighbourhood and cutting around the way it does is because it's not a very plot-driven movie. The plot plot is extremely simple slash non-existent. I mean, the plot, the plot's what? Mookie wants to get paid? And. Well, I'm just you know, <laughs> looking on the not...
1: Wikipedia page yeah. at the plot section, and half, literally half of just the plot section, is the last 20 minutes of the film. Yeah. Where exactly. they go into the um pizzeria yeah, at the end. That's when the action and it all happens, kicks off. Right? Yeah, I mean, like, most of it is just like. Uh, during the day a variety of things happen and then it's just maybe a paragraph and a sentence each for what is happening but that somehow fills the bulk of the two hour runtime and I think that
0: helps it because because it isn't super plot heavy plot based movie when you're cutting to these different characters it isn't so something mechanically can happen. You know, yeah. it isn't. Oh, we need to go back to Ozzy Davis because he needs to put on the disguise and trick the guards so he can get access to the safe, <laughs> you know. And then we're coming back to m- Mama's sister, and she's yeah. got to uh, get successfully get the dottier children. to you know to uh, <laughs> yeah. to tom cruise it's not because yeah. it's not having to juggle those types of balls um those i think on one hand that's what allows it to feel quite breezy and, and mm. sort of free and easy is the fact that you go to these scenes where they they have room to breathe you know yeah. the characters have room to breathe the only job of a scene with Demer in it really is to enjoy that character and let that character breathe it doesn't yeah. there's no like narrative tick box stuff going on in that scene. He isn't yeah. having to by the end of that scene establish some key plot point or dump some exposition you know like the problem that for example in a Marvel movie you know that, that you might have with that is that when you're cutting to Captain America for for five minutes during one movie full of 50 characters the only mm. thing he can do in that movie is tell the audience important stuff about what he next has to do to stop the MacGuffin from yeah. falling into the magical other MacGuffin or, or whatever right mm. that, that's all there's room to do he can't have like a big character beat where he can comes to learn something about himself or or his relationship with the winter soldier you know that's not going to go because the movie just doesn't have room for it whereas this movie has space to accommodate just character work and i think ultimately that's what draws you in to a film personally as well
1: No, I I think you're absolutely right. So Um, that's why
0: Inception's probably the worst film ever made. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's it's just exposition. Every scene is just explaining. Like, literally, there isn't a piece of dialogue in that movie that isn't explaining to the audience what part of the dream someone is in. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: I watched the... Weirdly (laughs) enough, I watched the opening 20 minutes of that the other day because I had to test it for a screening. And um, there are i mean at any point it's just that there's i think it's maybe one of the only films i've ever seen without a subtext like there's nothing (laughs) going on under the surface like whether it's character motivation or internal sort of life or whatever everything is spelt out like um i mean this is a weird uh jump (laughs) from this film to that film but i i just sort of um on your point like it was a thought but i think Um, i think
0: it is kind of randomly sort of relevant there like i think i think that that is the difference between something like this and something like that right yeah. and i think that's also why and this is where i'm just going to enter snob territory and be a complete asshole. but i think yeah. that's also why something like uh do the right thing has trouble finding as big an audience as something like inception because right. when people ask the question and you'll you'll have run into this all your life as well when someone yeah. asks you the question what's that film about what they mean is literally the stuff on the Wikipedia about Do the Right Thing, right? Yeah. That's what they mean. What's the film about? The film is about racial tensions in a neighbourhood and they burn down a pizzeria because of some racism yeah. and the police killer guy. That's what the film's about. But that's not what the film's about. You know, yeah. the film is about the themes of the film. The film is about the way the it characters. makes you feel about the characters and the neighborhood. Yeah. And I think the thing is, is, is not to rag on Inception, you know, I don't genuinely think it's the worst film ever made. That was, you know, <laughs> exaggeration no, 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 no. Yeah. for effects. Yeah. But like Inception is a film that is about the very complicated plot of Inception. And people yeah. like that because people like to feel smart and people like to feel like plot matters a lot you know yeah (laughs) whereas whereas where do the right thing is and i know like these are chalk and cheese like there's no reason to be comparing these two movies but do the right thing is in the other camper film it's in the camper film that is about um sitting back thinking about it as pretentious as that sounds about what the themes of the movie are about enjoying the characters and it's a different a different vibe isn't it
1: i mean like just to add on to what you're saying historically cinema has primarily been about like it's a sideshow you know there's always been inceptions throughout history which are like um we just need to have purely plot so that people stay with it and like enjoy themselves and uh you know when sort of art film kind of came in and invaded the whole process um you know it's uh, people have had this weird aversion to any uh film where you are forced to engage with things beyond just pure entertainment because that it's, you know, cinema has established itself as an entertainment kind of medium. Um, and so when a film like this, which I think strides those two sort of, um, arenas, like as well as it does, um, I don't know. I mean, it obviously didn't have trouble finding an audience because it made like forty million against oh, yeah. six million. So I mean, it, like, like I feel, it well. I feel
0: I was kind of almost implying do the right thing was some sort of flop back then, which wasn't really no, my no, point. No. But, but yeah, your yeah. point
1: comparison to something like inception is important because a film that is meandering like this film is like people feel as though they don't want to spend time in a neighborhood. They want to spend time in dreams or in space or like, um, you know, being Batman or whatever it's going to be, uh, wherever, wherever mood, Christopher Nolan's in that week. You know? <laughs> um, and so it does take, I mean, I feel like in more amateurish hands, namely someone like me, Um, was to try and do a film like this. There is the intention to do a film about um, a neighbourhood that's very low-key, but sort of received knowledge of narrative. Like, you know, nowadays I think someone to try and make this, they'd, they'd feel compelled to start with the riot and then just have things really kick off, and that's your inciting incident. It's a big riot, and then focus on that. And it is a testament to Spike Lee's confidence in himself. And obviously what he's trying to say to just have very subtle kind of low key threads sort of coming together bit by bit. Um, and I'm really baffled that he wrote in two weeks. I feel like it's something that was with him a lot longer than that. And it wasn't just like, I've had a good idea in two weeks. It's just like a lot, you know, he's obviously lived this film. Um, uh, in the same way, someone like Richard Linklater lived *Dazed and Confused* or *Boyhood*. You know, it's like it doesn't take a lot of effort for them to draw that out.
0: Yeah, I think there's a thing to go back to the kind of Oscars that we were talking about at the beginning. Mm-hmm. There, there definitely seems to be a trend, and this isn't always the case, but there does seem to be a trend of you do your best work, and then fifteen, twenty, thirty years later, you win your Oscar your for a bad film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, because I think you see that a lot through history. People who kind of mm. who, who've done, for example, Spielberg. I mean, all his Oscar success has come sort of in the Schindler's List vein of things. Yeah. When he should have been banging out best directors for Jaws e. and E.P. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. and you get that with Spike Lee basically being ignored for Do the right thing in the past. And I, I know he didn't win best director, but then Black Clansman mm. being his first nomination in that arena. Um, the other examples in this escape me right now but I know there are legions of them. Um, Scorsese is a big one because
1: as we were trawling through um, you know Oscar ceremonies been and gone um, and I didn't realise I thought that things like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull had just been outright ignored in the past but they were nominated for Best Picture and just didn't win and then suddenly it's like well he's made this film called the departed i suppose now's the time to give him one he's quite <laughs> old you know he might not yeah um but i mean it's you know there's no sort of two ways like great filmmakers generally like truly great uh time testers are generally ignored i've yet to see paul thomas anderson win an academy award and he's been Worthy of it several times, but in in a um, risk
0: of seeming really glib and facetious, he, he he hasn't made a middle of the road enough film yet. Like Paul Thomas well, Anderson, it, yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson, ten years time when he's making his his shittest film that just stars like <laughs> it just stars like an elderly English Mark actress Alberg. as a royal, then yeah. <laughs> then he'll win. Which is not, by the way, a backhand by Olivia Coleman. She's fucking awesome, and the is yeah. really good. But there is yeah. a trend for like things like um, Judy Dench winning for being in Shakespeare in Love for two minutes as the queen. yeah, That sort of thing. You know, he makes his version of that. Just play a royal. Uh,
1: That seems to be the running, um, like, you know, the foot in the door. Because if you play someone (laughs) of the royal family, you're in.
0: But yeah, we've Um, we've massively gone off off topic. (laughs) Yeah. Well,
1: I I don't know. I feel like we've covered a lot of... um, I mean, that, I think, pretty well covers it, you know. Like, it is a really really strong film it is and remarkable in how um a most of all how well it holds up now how relevant it is how weird it is that 30 years later basically the same a very similar thing has happened to spike lee although i think people will revisit black klansman a lot i don't think to the it will become a classic to the extent of do the right thing no um but I think and, that
0: speaks louder for how great Do the Right Thing is than than yeah. as a snub on Black Klansman. I feel with yeah, Black yeah. Klansman um It's such a, a ridiculous bit like,
1: bar to meet.
0: It is, but also I think it's a little bit like some of the um faint praise that some of the better late Woody Allen films received, in that if if a random if a random new New York filmmaker had come out with one of the lesser good sort of recent Woody Allen movies it Mm. would be heralded as oh here's someone to watch you know but not because it's in comparison to Annie Hall you know what I mean it's in comparison to Manhattan so it takes on a different a whole different thing like if Black Klansman was the work of a new first time young black New York director people would go oh that's a really effective movie you know that's really interesting
1: especially um uh, next to i mean both spike lee and woody allen obviously not quite to the extent that woody allen has but spike lee i think for the last 10 or so years has put out either a documentary or a feature film mm. every year and has been met with little or no reception at all yeah. and no real box office drop it's kind of like you notice because it's spike lee And then, I I mean, it speaks quite loudly to the politics of filmmaking that uh, then one of those should have the kind of pull of, I think, Jordan Peele's producer on that. Yeah. uh, You know, some names got involved. And, um, you know, suddenly it's kind of an Oscar campaign type of deal. Yeah. Jordan Peele become
0: a powerhouse, right? I mean, two years in a row nominated for Best Picture as a producer. Yeah. He's on a roll. And that Us looks really good. This is really on tangent now, but Us looks really good. It it,
1: it is and it isn't. I mean, it's a similar sort of sphere of filmmaking, um, you know, and um, it does look really good. And the trailer's really, really scary. (laughs) Like, really quite terrifying.
0: But yeah, I think yeah. that I think that about wraps up uh, Do the Right Thing. Yeah. I think I think sort of just in summary of that first 20 minutes, I do think it's a really effective setup. I do think you yeah. get so much information about who everybody is, what everybody's yeah. doing, um, the themes of the, the film get established. And at the yeah. end of that 20 minutes, you have the first conflict of the film, the first real sort of point of plot, really, which yeah. is them saying, hey, why aren't there any brothers on the wall, which is what kicks off the end of the film. So yeah. it does, we, we somehow, we hit on this 20 minutes in thing almost at random originally but there mm. there does seem to be that it is the point where the the plot starts moving and the the people i would are say in all films. of the
1: really good films yeah that we like really solid classics you do see a very distinct turn towards where this film's gonna go at the 20 minute mark like with the master it was he you know joaquin phoenix
0: getting on the, boat, on the boat it? where yeah. he's gonna
1: meet the master um, I can't remember what the one for Seven Samurai... I think it was they were in the um, village? It's Yeah, it's basically...
0: Were... The Seven Samurai point was when the villagers are now in town looking for the samurai... Which is oh, has a it lot was, set up. It was before just that.
1: before um, the leader Takashi Shimura leader goes say, to yeah, um, rescue when he, the baby. He rescues the baby. Yeah, yeah, it's at that point as well. Um, and Jurassic Park was when they see the dinosaurs for the first time. It is. It's and so it's like good. You realize. So there is a common thing. What's the worst one we've done? Pixels. pixels. What happens? But what happens at twenty minutes nothing. in Pixels?
0: No, but this is this is what <laughs> started. This happens. is if you didn't listen to our first episode. This is what started the podcast because Pixels. We we're watching it together. And we were amazed that 20 minutes in, almost nothing
1: What <laughs> well, actually was it at the 20... Was it just Adam Sandler I think was it's, installing a TV? I
0: think it's like Adam... I think it might be Adam Sandler and Kevin James talking about how Kevin James is now the president and Adam Sandler right. is a cable guy yeah, 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 yeah. or something.
1: So there they you go, <laughs> young <laughs> budding filmmakers... Make twenty minutes. Twenty minutes precious.
0: So do we? Do we need to? We've done a few good films on the bounce. I you were going to we? say,
1: do we ever need to do another podcast? Because <laughs> we've, <laughs> we've done it. Out. We it. We've figured it out. We've <laughs> unravelled the mystery of twenty. <laughs> no, minutes. I
0: was going to say, do we need to go back to doing a a bad film? Do we need to? Because uh, we've done pixels but then we did jurassic park the uh takata film only yesterday the master already player one was shipped okay we did that recently seven samurai and then our last episode was cloud Atlas. so uh yeah yeah, i don't know any if you're listening and you have any suggestions for us let us know we do have a twitter that's now quite active i live tweeted the oscars uh to an audience of no one, so please come and hang friends. out with me uh, it 's twenty underscore minutes underscore in is the uh, the Twitter handle. If you have mm-hmm. any suggestions for us or things you'd like us to to consider covering, then please do let 's know Tom, do you have any uh, any thoughts on where we could go from here
1: oh film wise yeah, do you know what on the basis of what we just said, I want to find a film that is uh, irredeemably terrible that has a really solid 20-minute point where you're like, okay, every <laughs> moment of this film is agony, but it is, it's going somewhere. I'm, it's going somewhere. I'm not... Um, I,
0: yeah, I'm... I, I thought because uh, you're saying oh, every minute up to, up to there's of agony. I was thinking you meant what films are really bad but have a solid beginning. And there's I'm yeah, not so suggesting we would. You. I'm not suggesting we would do this because we've already done Jurassic Park. But Jurassic Park three fools me every time I watch it, thinking exactly <laughs> that not as bad as I remember. Because the first sort of probably twenty minutes of that movie is yeah. pretty good actors. You've got William H Macy, Tier Leone, Sam Neill. They are having some fairly. Okay, dialogue scenes. It's written by Alexander Payne, isn't it? Or something mad.
1: I think so. Yeah, yeah and it's involved. just them,
0: them just uh, like talking in in a bar, talking about going to the island. It all gets set up fairly okay, and then the whole movie just goes to shit the moment they land on the island.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so interesting. I- Maybe we, that meant that I think needs to be a contender because I want to know exactly <laughs> where the twenty minutes are. I have a strong suspicion. It's when they're uh, when Sam Nil wakes up on the plane after they've knocked him out.
0: Yeah, or if it's that <laughs> we're in big trouble.
1: I, I have a feeling it's when the Spinosaurus shows up for the first time. I'm pretty sure that's it. Yeah,
0: I, I was gonna say that. I was gonna say the bit where the guy's on the runway and the uh, Spinosaurus eats him. Probably. Yep. That's probably I it. it like. I'm just looking at um I'm just thinking at a list you sent me comparing our letterboxed uh best rated films yeah uh, to see if there's anything here that that would be uh would be a good to cover i'll throw this out and and if anyone is listening and they want to uh pick one on our on our social media we have on here we've not done a kubrick yet have we
1: we have
0: have i don't think we have don't think we have
1: well i know what you're gonna say and it's definitely a good one to start with his films if he, if the one I think you're going to say is the well, one
0: I'm going to say. Well, I'm torn because you've on this list is both Barry Lyndon and 2001.
1: I, I thought you were going to say Barry Lyndon, but yeah. I
0: was going to say 2001, but then when you said, I know what you're going to say, I thought, yeah, I'm a Barry Lyndon guy. You're a Barry Lyndon man. <laughs> <I'm a Barry laughs> man. I'm a Barry Lyndon <laughs> man. This is my son. <laughs> I'm a Lyndon man. I'm a Lyndon man.
1: This is um... my son, Barry <laughs> Sorry, sorry everyone.
0: So uh yeah, we've got some Oh we've got Dark Knight on this list actually.
1: Do we? We've got dark Dark Knight might
0: be interesting. I don't I I I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what the first twenty minutes is. Is the first twenty minutes just the Joker robbing that bank? That is a
1: pretty strong opener. Um I don't know if that goes all the way up to twenty minutes, but I think it would cover the bulk of it. And then from there, you start getting involved in, like, what's with all these bank robberies? What's with this Joker? Who is he? What's up? When did? what's the uh, first
0: time you see Batman in the Dark Knight? I can't remember. Oh, man. It has been a while since After I've seen it. For a long time. You've but, also got uh, a mid list, uh, Gravity, which I've not seen since I saw it at the cinema. So I would not be adverse to rewatching Gravity. Sure. Um, there's also The Conversation that I've not seen in a very long time, mm. Night of the Hunter, which you just mentioned. If yeah. anyone uh, feels strongly about any of these, then um, let us know on Twitter. Uh, otherwise, we will, we will debate amongst ourselves uh, offline. And we'll figure it we'll all figure out. It
1: out. I would also like to say on a non. Um film related note congratulations for getting number one on tetris 99 and <laughs> following your instagram progress and i've been waiting for the day and uh just yesterday i think it finally happened so it, it, yeah i
0: i've now i've now finished first on tetris 99 after many many uh second place finishes over the last week <laughs> um yeah, thank you. Tom. I just look that's at cool it when I
1: see other people playing it. I just look at it like the worst kind of like you know like when uh, in Goodwill Hunting when he's solving those weird equations <laughs> on the chalkboard. That's what it looks like to me. So it's
0: the it's the it. only game I've genuinely been preparing for my whole life. Like it got, <laughs> because the thing is these these all these other battle royales like PUBG and Fortnite. I'm useless in them. I will always be killed by somebody way better at the game than me <laughs> way before the end. Whereas Tetris, right. I've played it so long all through my life quite consistently. I'm like, yeah, I'm here now. I've done the training. I've put the time in. Yeah. And um, I'm still not I've... that good, but I did finish first once. That is pretty
1: <laughs> I I hats off. I mean that's a big deal, I think. Um I'm about to clock two hundred hours on Breath of the Wild, so right. that's not much of an accomplishment. Is this really, a new or, uh
0: new segment on the pod where we talk about what video games we're playing? <laughs> <for the laughs> this I think we minutes. should end. Yeah. Like where are you on Breath of the Wild? Well <laughs>
1: yeah. um
0: yeah, what are the first that video games really throw the 20 minutes in thing for a loop right because the first yeah. 20 minutes of video games you've probably just learnt the controls and watched the <laughs> cut <cutting>. yeah <laughs> like
1: um, I think we should get a twitter poll going <laughs> that the, we should do a, a sub-segment where we assess the first 20 minutes of a video game yeah. and that people on Twitter should vote for it uh, the first, until they start doing that.
0: The first twenty minutes of Breath in the Wild is, I think, a fairly long cutscene and then you wake up like in a... Are you in the nude? Or are you like a blue tunic? In, well, like, a it's, not,
1: it's not a long cutscene at all, actually. You wake up in your little resurrection pod and then you're instantly given the Sheikah slate, oh, which right. is kind of substitute yeah. for your switch. Yeah, and then you've got to learn how to climb, and you get. Oh, uh, so you don't get cutscenes; you just get like, dropped in. Basically, you just go That's for it, boom. and then there's a little bit of dialogue with the old man later. But then he's just like, "Yeah, just get on with it. Like, this is the area you can't leave yet, so just do it."
0: There's and, an interesting um, thing with the freedom, very little of, handholding. Uh, yeah, there's an interesting thing with the freedom of an open interactive world like that, where the the Potentially a player could leave that cave and walk to the left, go the complete wrong direction, and just go to the other end of the map and have a very bad time. But yeah. the game designers lead you with lots of things, light and the way that the path is laid out and the just kind of the landscape to yeah. so that your first twenty minutes were probably very similar to mine. Because I of things so, that yeah. we didn't even no, we were doing on purpose because well, it kind of leads you yeah. down the hill. You can find an axe. You talk to an old man. You know these things are kind of laid on, even though you're not necessarily conscious of that fact when you start playing.
1: Um, I did watch uh, just the other day a speed run of the whole game. So the you know for anyone who doesn't know, and it's like that game you can um, skip the entire game and go straight to the last boss and complete it like. an hour. I watched someone do it in about 30 minutes. So the first 20 minutes of that were incredibly rigorous, glitching hacking of the game to skip a lot of things and then uh, going straight to the very final boss. So the first 20 minutes of that game dependent on your experience level um, vary greatly. You're not sort of guided through long arduous cutscenes and then having to do tutorial segments. You pretty much just dropped in and it's just like get on with it. So there you go everyone there's our uh that's, <laughs> that wraps up our gaming segment of 20 minutes here
0: <laughs> that wraps up the do the right thing podcast uh, yeah. yeah
1: well i'd love to see a do the right thing open world game, for <laughs> video game yeah. just a pizza delivery man going from place to place exactly
0: press r2 to throw the trash can <laughs> all right then Well, uh, thank you very much for listening. And if you've stuck through our gaming segment, uh, thank you very much indeed. (laughs) Achievement Unlocked. (laughs) Uh, I have been Robert Beams and I'm Um, joined as always by... Tom Oliver. Thank you very much for listening. Bye. Thanks very much.